I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app. You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, I'm Dhamini and you're listening to Gender Question. Here, we will look at an issue that's in the news using the lens of gender. The idea is to take a blind spot and throw some light on it. In my final episode of the Pride series, I speak to another chronicler of queer lives and the legal battle against Section 377. Danish Sheikh is currently a PhD candidate at the Melbourne Law School. Prior to this, Danish worked as a human rights lawyer with the Alternative Law Forum in Bangalore. Danish is also a theatre practitioner. His doctoral study explores the intersections of law and performance. Contempt, his first original play, was nominated for the Hindu Playwright Award in 2017 and opened the Global Queer Plays Festival at the Arcola Theatre in London in March 2018. His writing has even been cited by the Supreme Court of India in 2018. All right. So, Danish, hi. Thank you for joining me. So, Danish, basically, what are your first thoughts about this decade? This decade that's just ended. All right. Thank you. 2020 feels like a decade as well. So, yeah, if you're talking in terms of uh, LGBT rights, I think it's interesting because when we started the decade, we had this extremely progressive decision from the Delhi High Court that was the governing law in some ways. And then the story of the decade has been kind of backsliding in one way. Yeah. Uh, but then really kind of rolling back with an even more progressive decision in some ways. And the NAS judgment of the Delhi High Court, which reads down Section 377 for consenting adults in private, was challenged almost immediately by a large number of organizations and individuals, including Joint Action Council Kanur and former Member of Parliament, uh, the late BP Singhal, both of whom were interveners before the Delhi High Court. During the pendency of special leave petitions, many individuals and organizations had filed intervention applications, all of which were permitted in 2011. Simply put, among those who stood in favor of bringing back Section 377 to the law books were Suresh Kumar Kaushal, an astrologer based in Delhi, the Delhi Commission for Protection of Child Rights, Trust God Missionaries, Krantikari Manuvadi Morcha Party, Utkal Christian Council, All India Muslim Personal Law Board, and even an individual named S.K. Tijarawala, who is Ramdev Baba's spokesperson, according to his Twitter account and also the court document. Standing in favour of the Delhi High Court order were Nivedita Menon and other academicians, Ratna Kapoor and other law professors and research associates of the Jindal Global Law School, Dr. Shekhar Seshadri and other mental health practitioners associated with NIMHANS in Bangalore, 
Minna Saran and other parents of LGBT persons and filmmaker Sham Benegal. In December 2013, the Supreme Court bench of Justices G.S. Singhvi and S.J. Mukhopadhyay found that Section 377 was constitutionally sound because only a minuscule fraction of India's population were LGBT. And in the past 150 years, less than 200 persons had been prosecuted under it. Hence, these rights that the Delhi High Court had spoken of were basically so-called rights. It was a moment of um, huge shock for a lot of people because the decision from the Delhi High Court was just considered to be so strong in so many ways. It really felt like the public tide had shifted. So, so, so there was that. But at the same time, I think what's interesting is that when that decision in 2013 comes out, the kind of anger, I think, that it that it unleashes was also very productive in certain ways because I think what it did was it it really galvanized the movement, you know, and and it galvanized in very interesting kinds of ways. When you say anger, you mean the backlash that it generated among sections of society yep. like that also led to the uh, sort of, well, uh, trying to look at the judgment again, taking it back to the Supreme Court. Is that what you're referring to? What do you mean by yeah, anger? I mean, I mean, I, yeah, so I think I think that was one part of it in terms of like let's rethink legal strategy. But I think it was also in terms of are there things in terms of activist strategy? Are there other things that haven't been working? There's one strand of the story which will tell us that you know what happened after that was lawyers going back to the drafting board and rethinking strategy. But I think what's equally interesting is how civil society activists start thinking about other ways to kind of come back. Um, other ways to kind of mobilize, um, other fights to kind of fight at the same time. What do you mean by the other fights that had to be fought around the same time? Yeah, so I think one thing that was really interesting was how um, a push for uh, identity recognition became really crucial. And so the idea was that, you know, you might have gone two steps back in terms of sexuality, but you know, if one of the things that we're fighting for is gender recognition, is allowing transgender persons to access the law, access different provisions with autonomy, then is that a battle that can still be had at the same time as criminality exists? And the answer seemed to be yes. So four months after the Supreme Court decision, yeah. you know, you have a really progressive verdict um, by another two-judge bench, um, yeah. Nalsa versus Unity. Which is the Nalsa judgment. I think it was in 2012 that the National Legal Services Authority approached the court. Um, I think what what then happened was, so yes, you we were having these conversations about identity, but I don't know if they were at the forefront in the same way. So it's it's interesting because 377 was really kind of taking up the air in, yeah. in a way, right? Which is obviously that's that's a certain that's a slightly false notion of looking at social change that it's a zero sum game. So yeah. It's like, it's, you know, this one issue that we can pursue yeah. at one point of time. Yeah. Um, but but hey, I mean, it was also because it was the law. I mean, so <laughs> like that yeah. was kind of the yeah. focal point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. But you know, like what then happens is that in, when the Supreme Court does come out with this progressive verdict in 2014, yeah. uh, what's really encouraging and wonderful is a number of lawyers and activists decide to take that jurisprudence and really kind of work with it and 
you know, translated at the ground level. And I think that's, that's quite powerful to kind of think about as well, you know. So yeah. it's one of the unfortunate things that happened after that decision, as we now know, is, you know, you had this central legislation that is now law which yeah. actually dilutes um, the Supreme Court's verdict in certain ways. Yeah. And so it's this interesting battle that lawyers and activists have fought where you have this progressive law and you're trying to activate it in some ways yeah. at, the, at the district level or you know, at the level of, say, government offices, the bureaucratic spaces. And then there's a larger conversation that's happening in parliament just trying to whittle it down. Danish is referring to the Nalsa judgment, which we've spoken of in earlier episodes. The Supreme Court judgment, which came out in 2014, granted legal recognition of identity to trans persons for the first time in the history of modern-day independent India. Crucially, it centered the issue of gender identity on self-assertion. It clearly said that to expect any kind of medical proof of gender change was not only immoral, but also illegal. What the Nalsa judgment did, as Danish points out, is take forward the larger conversations about identity and gender and sexuality, even at a time when Section 377 had been brought back as a law. Socially, a lot of work began after the Nalsa judgment, as the trans community was also now empowered by a Supreme Court judgment to seek non-discrimination and social welfare entitlements from the state. So as a chronicler, what I'm trying to sort of understand is what do you think about this, exactly this, uh, should we say, kind of really productive tension, right? Between engagement with law hmm? and the formation of an identity and the recognition of an identity. And the recognition of identity, and I, and I just want to add this caveat here that, you know, I mean, when we think about gender identity and particularly the trans movement, I feel that the Nalsa judgment, well, at least for me as somebody who was also writing about this at this time, it felt like it just came out of the blue, right? I mean, did that happen with you as well? Or, or were you saying that you were already part of conversations on questions of gender identity or what was happening? You know, I, I really appreciate you asking that question because I, I do remember that particularly around 2012 and 13 when, you know, I was thinking about uh, the 377 litigation and I started writing about it. The, the space where I was working in Bangalore, the Alternative Law Forum, was also conducting a campaign on uh, Section 36A of the Karnataka Police Act, which was effectively reviving um, an old colonial statute um, that targeted uh, trans persons um, through the figure of the, the hijra. So, uh, so I remember, you know, being cognizant of those conversations, but not really taking a very active role in them. And I, I mean, I still, I mean, I, I wonder about why that might have been the case. I'm still not sure, but I think that what 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 then happened was when the Nalsa decision kind of comes out. I really um, trained myself to engage, to, to understand what the implications of the decision were. And so then to have a lot of conversations with the activists that we were already working with about, you know, what it even means, because it's, I mean, it's a complicated kind of thing because I, I think you have to remember at that point of time, it wasn't, we hadn't really had a conversation about 
what a progressive gender identity law could really look like. You know, we weren't having those large scale community consultations. Yeah. And and as we noted earlier in the conversation, this was an abrupt kind of petition. It was just filed by the National Legal Services Authority. There wasn't a lot of conversation around it. Yeah. Um, and then we were lucky in a way when Lawyers Collective intervened in the matter and, yeah. um, you know, they really nuanced the petition in certain ways. And so, so the decision that was then released by the Supreme Court reflects that nuance, you know, and, yeah. and I mean, just to kind of capture that. So what, what it then says is that, yes, there is the gender binary, but there is also the potential to move across the binary. And what we're going to do is give you two kinds of things. We're going to tell you that if you want to move across um, the male to female gender, the female to male gender, then that is a decision that you can make on the basis of your own identification. And yeah. if you want to step outside the binary and identify as a third gender, then we allow that as well. And so that, I mean, so that was quite remarkable. In 2016, even as the Supreme Court agreed to hear curative petitions in the Suresh Kumar Kaushal verdict, as the 2013 verdict on 377 came to be called, a bunch of new petitions were filed, this time by persons from the LGBT community. The first petition was filed by five people, Sangeet Natak Academy Award winner for Bharat Natyam, Navtej Johar, his partner and journalist Sunil Mehra, Chef Ritu Dalmia, businesswoman Aisha Kapoor, and hotelier Amannath. These five people were represented by Menika Guruswami and Arundhati Karchu, Supreme Court lawyers. Another petition against Section 377 was filed by three trans women, Akai Padmashali, Sana, and Umi Umesh, who argued that Section 377 curtailed their rights in the light of the Nalsa judgment. They were represented by an advocate called Jenna Kothari. In 2018, another clutch of petitions were filed, including by activists like Arif Jafar, one of the four men arrested back in 2001 in Lucknow under Section 377, Ashok Rao Kavi, one of the co-founders of the Hamsafar Trust, and even Keshav Suri, the executive director of Lalit Hotels. Fourteen members of a group of a queer IIT alumni called Pravriti also filed a petition against the law. Anand Grover, in fact, uh, represented Arif Jafar and the petition filed by Ashok Rao Kavi and other co-founders of the Hamsafar Trust. But before all of this, it's important to think about and to speak about another judgment of a nine-judge bench, which came to be known as the Puttaswami verdict. And this judgment was on privacy. The issue, particularly when it comes to gender identity, is it's been such a back and forth. Because, again, like you said, so you had NALSA and you had this law that recognized identity. But at the same time, it was saying that you could still be criminalized for having queer sex. So, you know, it's, it's so yeah. there's that tricky kind of thing. And then... Um, and then there is one blow to that in 2017 with the Puttaswami decision where a nine-judge bench of the Supreme Court unanimously holds that there is a right to privacy. You can do what you want with your body amongst other things. But also, at least I think four judges out of those nine specifically say that the Suresh Kumar Kaushal decision is bad law in different kinds of ways. So they, they disavow the judgment or they say that, you know, if you 
if you do hold that a right to privacy exists, then Suresh Kumar Kaushal doesn't actually stand as um, law in, in that sense. So, so that's really interesting. And then, of course, in 2018, the Supreme Court finally does away with uh, with that decision. So, wait, wait, wait. Um, Tell me something. Wasn't there something else about how the privacy judgment spoke about, or or, or really like nuanced the definition of privacy as well? That, you know, where earlier we would think of privacy in terms of space, but now we weren't just thinking of it spatially. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So again, I want to say that, so it's the privacy decision does do this, but I think it's important to remember that this conversation actually began in 2009 with the Delhi High Court. So, so back then itself, they talk about how, you know, privacy doesn't just inhere in uh, spaces, it also inheres in bodies. Okay, and you know, it's also about so it's also about the decision that you make about what to do with your body. Uh-huh. Right? So that's yeah. So not just private space, but private choice. Uh-huh. Um, and that can the, be upheld as a constitutional right. That's what Putaswami did. But the yes, constitution yes. Still began in two thousand nine with the Nas judgment. I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, the the problem with the Nas judgment, um, and I mean this is a point of contention, is is that when it delivered its verdict, it still only decriminalized consensual sex between adults in private, right? So, so the point is, you're saying that you're talking about privacy, both of spaces and of intimate decisions, but you're only actually protecting people if they have sex in the private space. So if I, you know, so um, what what um, Puttaswami points towards and then what Navtejo finally does is quite fantastic because um, the, the holding with at least uh, four of the judges in Navtej Johar is that consensual sex between adults is decriminalized, regardless of whether it's public or private. Now you have other laws which will step in if you actually decide to start having sex in public places, sure. but yeah. those sure. laws are applicable for everybody. So it's not just... You yeah. know, this discriminatory colonial provision. So Nasa, it comes through in terms of the right to freedom of speech and expression, yeah. where you talk about how uh, my right to express myself is then tied to my right to, you know, express myself along the lines of a particular gender identity. Yeah. And then that weaves into a privacy right. right? I, this yeah. is how I choose to appear. This is how I choose to identify. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so again, I mean, that just tells us that I guess like the thing that underlines the conversation that we're having then is that it's important to not forget those incremental shifts that were made. Yeah. So... Um, in the law. Yeah, so, so Puttuswami in 2017 and Navtejo in 2018 are great moments, but they build very much on moments that happened in 2014 and 2009. Navtej also came about at a time when... Um, there were lots of incremental shifts through the decade, which was happening socially and culturally, right? So this yeah. idea, for instance, um, you know, one thing that's always struck me is how in Navtej, we, we saw, I think, we saw people who are actually affected by the law um, file petitions, right? And, uh, and across class, across gender identities, across castes. And for me, I think that that was... Like we, and, and and not that Nas the Nas petition didn't it had affidavits it had people I think it had a trans person it had a gay man I think it had uh, even a lesbian I could be wrong I I need to check 
fact check that. But it did have affidavits of people speaking about them, but it wasn't people representing themselves, right, in the Nas judgment. It was, a, it was an organization. And that, that fact that you had people coming up to the court and saying, this law affects me personally. I mean, I think that that was only possible because of the decades of, uh, you know, not just the not just the legal battle, but also the the queer movement that was you know around it, the feminist movement that was around it, the conversations that were happening, the language that was coming up and literally being created in some ways, right, around this. On September six, two thousand eighteen, a five-judge bench of the Supreme Court, headed by the then Chief Justice of India, Deepak Mishra, read down Section three seven seven, finding it unconstitutional. The other judges expanded on the various fundamental rights guaranteed to all citizens by the Indian constitution and found that section 377 did indeed obstruct these rights. Finally, the law was struck off the books. What's changed post-Navtej? The fiction, of course, is that you have a verdict that's announced in a courtroom and then there's this magic wand that moves over the, the jurisdiction um, and everything kind of changes overnight. So obviously that's not, that's not and that never will be the story of how law interacts with everyday life. And I think this is really where stories of activism, stories of everyday resistance, stories of culture kind of become important because that's, I think that's really where the question of change happens. I hope that you have enjoyed the stories of queer resistance that I've shared over this past month. If you have any questions, do reach out to me at the Red Dhamini on Twitter. You can also leave your feedback at HT Smartcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Bye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. HT Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.